of what we mean by average, which is the median. The median average is the, the broadband speed enjoyed by the 50th percentile household. So the household that has broadband speeds that are faster than 50% of households and that are slower than the other 50% of households. That's the definition of the median average. Uh, and if that's the definition they're using of average, it is clear, by definition, that <laughs> 49% uh, of uh, households have less than that, and I think it's very important that we keep fighting and fighting <laughs> to improve broadband until that's not true. Um, actually, I mean, there, are, there, there are other definitions of average, perfectly reasonable definitions of average, um, under which that story might be news. I mean, under a perfectly reasonable definition of average, uh, everybody in this room, I think, excuse me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right in saying that everybody in this room has a, the, above the average number of legs. Uh, as far as I can see, everyone has um, uh, two legs. Um, since very few people have more than two legs, and some people have fewer than two legs, the average number of legs, the mean number of legs, if you add up all the number of, all the number of legs in the world and divide by the number of people, that's how you get the mean average, is about 1.999. And most people have, you know, above average number of legs, well done. <laughs> so it could be that you should be using that definition of average, in which case what they're reporting has some content. Um, on the other hand, when the BBC report the story, uh, if you don't say what definition of average you're using, you're, you're really demonstrating that you basically don't really care what the actual story is. And I think an important message is a lot of what we publish in the media, um, it gets published because it has some numbers in because it has form, it has the form of real facts, but in fact there's no content there at all, or the content is actively misleading. So today I want to talk about uh, spotting that kind of thing, and there'll be more technical, more serious, more important stories that, that I'll talk about. Spotting that kind of thing, and fixing it, and doing better at it. <coughs> um, so, I mean, the, the first piece of advice that I would uh, offer when you're faced with any number, uh, in somebody else's story, or in an official press release, whatever, is to ask yourself, is this a big number? Uh, and I'm shamelessly borrowing this advice from my uh, uh, colleagues who set up, more or less, Andrew Dillot and Michael Blaston. Andrew Dillot, of course, is now um, the master over at uh, St. Hughes. Um, they, they sort of said, well, just ask yourself, is it a big number? And you might say, well, what does that mean, is that a big number? Well, just give yourself some context. So a classic example uh, that Andrew pointed out, 
And this is 15 years old, but I, I can't get it out of my head. Gordon Brown, in the late 1990s, as the finance minister of the UK, um, announcing that he was going to fund uh, childcare for the, I think it was three to four year olds. It's going to be childcare, the government was going to free up money and, and help this to be provided. And he said it's going to be £300 million over five years. Of course, because everything, everything Gordon Brown said had the sort of code of over five years. Um, it, you know, for a start, you multiply all your numbers by five. So is that a big number? £300 million sounds like a big number. Uh, you know, it's a big number if, you know, if it's your bill and you go out to a restaurant. But it might not be a big number in this case. And we can find out really easily. There are 60 million people in the UK, roughly. 300 million pounds divided by five years is 60 million pounds a year. Stop me if the maths is too complicated. But I, you know, one of the messages is a lot of this is just not that hard. So 60 million pounds a year, 60 million people. So if there are 60 million people, how many children might there be uh, in this particular cohort, cohort that's a year old, you know, from three to four? Very roughly, a million. I mean, there's a rough rule of thumb in the UK, because we've got 60 million people and people live to 60, you know, and then a bit. You know, any given year, you know, the 16-year-olds, there'll be about a million of them. The 25-year-olds, there'll be about a million of them. It's not accurate, but it's close enough. So, you've got 60 million pounds spent on a million children per year, which is about one pound 15 a week. Which is about 20p a day, which probably doesn't buy a lot of childcare. I don't know where Gordon Brown <laughs> hires his babysitters, but you know, it seems to me that that's probably not a big number. And that's just a very, very simple piece of context. You don't need any technical expertise. You don't need any uh, huge pieces of knowledge. You just need to just figure it through. And you, very often, the numbers that are reported, you know, if you know the time period over which they're being reported, you know the population to which they apply, which of course you should know. It's a very, very basic piece of information. You can diagnose uh, numbers that, the number's perfectly true, it just doesn't mean what Gordon Brown would like you to think it means. Um, a second question to ask yourself is, um, when we're being presented with averages, we've already discussed what kind of average is it, but you also need to consider, well, what about the people, what about the situations that are not average? What's the distribution? It's nice to get a sense of this in, in many cases. Um, uh, as the saying goes, a rainbow is white, on average. Um, you probably want to know a little bit more about your typical rainbow. Uh, and this turns out to be important, for example, if we're looking at economic statistics. Uh, very, very easy to look at what's happening to GDP overall, what's happening to household income overall. But it's very interesting to ask yourself how many households are actually suffering badly, how many households are doing fine. Typically, when you look at the underlying structure of the numbers, and this is a more complicated thing, but if you're interested, you can find an expert who will help you with it. Um, when you look at the underlying structure of the numbers, what you're finding is most people are doing fine, and some people are doing terribly because they just got sacked. That's the typical story. Okay? I'm not saying that means the recession is not a problem. I'm saying it's just a different kind of problem from the problem you would see if you just said, well, consumer expenditure fell by 2% last year, for instance. I mean, in general, I think it really helps to, um, to know some, to just some basic facts about uh, the country, the industry that you're covering, so basically <coughs> numerical facts, the population of the country, the size of the GDP, 
um, how, how much is a percentage of GDP the government spends, the, um, the crime rate, uh, how many murders are. I mean, it depends what, sort of, what beat you're covering. But just some basic <coughs> enabling you to very, very quickly evaluate the truth of a particular claim. So I got one, um, uh, just looked one up this morning. Four million women in the United States are battered to death by their husbands or boyfriends every year. Four million. Okay, it's it's there. It's on the interwebs. Okay, so it must be true. Um, the, and when you start to think about this, you again you just quickly do the maths and you go, that can't possibly be true. I think the total death rate from all causes in the United States is something like um, two point three million. I could have that wrong. But basically, more more women are killed by their husbands or boyfriends than people die, people stop. Okay? And when you have that sort of thing, you realize there's, a, there's an error, somebody's made a mistake, somebody's lying, or more likely, somebody's just putting around statistics that um, has no credibility, no, you know, no meaning whatsoever. So you, you want to sort of know the background that you're dealing with, a very, very quickly enables you to evaluate uh, claims. My favorite one, and this also I, I owe to uh, Michael Blastland, he used to do a course for British Treasury civil servants, and he used to ask them some questions like, "What, what is the um, what is the household income that would put you in the at the 90th percentile?" Uh, and of course, no civil servant in the UK has a clue uh, what household income would put you at the 90th percentile because they're, they're all much richer than that. Sorry, Well, it turns out to be it's an interesting question. That's not bad. It it. We need to ask a bit more. We need to say, well, uh, what kind of household? Because it turns out these things are technically adjusted. It also turns out we're talking pre-tax or post-tax. Um, no, 90th percentile, that's like the top 10%. The top 10%, the top 10%, yeah. yes. And it turns out the answer, and this is a few years old, about five, six years old, the answer is 35,000, uh, I think, before tax for a household for a couple. 35,000 for a couple puts you at about the 90th percentile. Of course, it's very different in different countries. But he was fascinated that none of the civil servants had a clue. Absolutely none had a clue. Actually, I've got another one for you. I'll give you a 10, multiple choice, okay? How much, and I apologize, because I know this is an international audience, but um, sorry, I'm a British economist. So just, just guess, in multiple choice, I'll help you. How much UK income tax is paid by the top 1% of income tax payers? Is it A, a half percent. I'm going to take a vote. Don't shout out. <laughs> a, a half percent. Is it B, two percent? Is it C, six percent? Or is it D, fifteen percent? So votes for A, half percent. So what, what's the question? What How much, proportion? what proportion of UK income tax is paid by the top one percent of UK income tax payers? So A, half a percent. Okay? It would be half that to be true because we've already said they are the top income tax payers. So presumably they must pay at least 1%. Okay? Thank you very much. But, but thank you. But, but thank you for this. Although, although it could, it, I, I could have asked a very, very similar question, and it could have been true if I'd said the top earners, mm -hmm. not top income taxpayers, it could have been true. Okay? So one of the lessons is, lessons is what did I say what you think I said? Does the journalist, is the journalist quoting this, do the statistics mean what the journalist thinks they mean? Does the definition, we'll come to that in a bit, does the definition actually mean what it appears to mean? Very often it doesn't. So thank you nevertheless for putting your hands up because we've got us started. So number two, two percent. So they pay twice as much tax as you would expect given, uh, okay, two percent. Uh, three, six percent. Okay, four, fifteen percent. 
Put your hands up if you think it's a trick question. <laughs> you know, how much is it? 24%. Uh, it was a couple of years ago, it's now 28%, uh, thanks to the 50% income tax rate. Okay, so that's interesting in and of itself. Oh, so is that paid or should have paid? Paid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 28%. That's interesting in and of itself. What's also interesting is that this statistic is now being, it's been discovered and it's now banded around. So Michael Portillo, a couple of days ago on the radio, uh, former um, cabinet minister, now reformed as a real sort of big, soft, you know, lovable, huggy guy. Um, he, uh, he said on a political chat show, um, people don't realise how progressive the UK tax system is. People don't realise the top 1% of taxpayers pay 28% of income tax. Okay, so let's have a think for a moment. What's wrong with that argument? Because the proportion of tax that's income tax is declining because people are paying for VAT every year and that's flat rate. Yeah, so that's one thing that's wrong with the argument, which is there's more to tax than income tax. And in fact, income tax is, I, I should know, I think it's about 20% a quarter of tax. So that's one thing, yeah? It doesn't tell you if it's progressive because it doesn't tell you what percentage of the earners that is. So whether the poor people are paying the tax or the rich people are paying the tax. No, absolutely, absolutely right. So if the top 1% earn 40% of the income, then knowing that they pay 28% of the tax is not very reassuring. If they pay 3% of the income, if they get 3% of the income, in other words, their income's about three times higher than the average, but they pay 28% of the tax, you would say, well, that's very progressive. Uh, truth is, somewhere in the middle, they uh, get about 12% of income, uh, and 28%, they pay 28% of income tax. So I think we can conclude the income tax system is progressive, we can argue about whether it should be more progressive. We don't know it, whether the tax system as a whole is progressive. And we certainly don't know very much at all from that simple statement. So it's always, it's always worth sort of going under the surface and saying, so what, what is actually being claimed? Um, the incredible shifting definition where, you know, first I seem to be talking about income distribution. This is why, I mean, I, I deliberately tried to, to trap these two gentlemen by getting you to think I was talking about income distribution and then, but actually, I'm talking about the incomes that people report to HM Revenue and Customs. So there's a controversy in the UK about uh, billionaires not paying any tax at all. And the reason they don't pay tax at all is because they're domiciled in Monaco or something like that. Well, they, they're not in that top 1% of UK taxpayers. So that number doesn't tell you anything about this very active debate. It doesn't tell you necessarily what you think it tells you. I find very, very often you will see uh, definitions, uh, either that don't mean what you think they mean, so this is often true with technical definitions, but also definitions that expand and contract to suit the journalist telling the story, or possibly to suit the campaigning group who have briefed the journalist or released the press for it. So for example, uh, a statistic that went around a few years ago uh, in the United States, one-fifth of students engage in self-harm and uh, illustrated with, of course, a picture of somebody with a, a knife on their wrist or something like that, you know, boiling kettle or something, something real, you know, something that looks bad. And you'll have a, a conversation about the number, one-fifth of students' health harm, and also about uh, what that might mean. Gosh, you know, suicide attempts, um, serious burns, serious, lasting mutilation. Um, and the journalist there, or as I say, the organisation who briefed the journalist who didn't think about it, is conflating two things. So there's a definition of self-harm, which we have not examined. We don't know what it means. And there are some examples of self-harm that look really bad. 
you, you see this again and again. So child abuse statistics, very common. Child abuse can, on some def definitions, include neglect, children who are not being fed three times a day, children who don't have clean clothes to go to school, maybe have to get themselves ready to go to school. Now, that's not good, but that's not necessarily what people think of when you see a statistic about child abuse, but often the statistic will include a very broad range of behaviours, and then the article will focus in on the most of it. You'll talk about children who were raped and murdered, and the, the statistic is not describing the actual behaviour that's been described in the article. So we have to be really, really careful about shifting definitions. So what happened in the self-harm example? This, by the way, I've got from a book by Joel Best called Stat Spotting. Um, my friends uh, Dilmot and Blaston have a book out called The Tiger That Isn't. It's very good. Stat Spotting is also very good. Um, the uh, Tiger That Isn't has a focus on the UK. Stat Spotting has a focus on the US, I have to admit. But the truth is that the actual principles are universally applicable. So what happened? Researchers approached 8,300 students at two Ivy League universities. Okay, so we've got a particular group of students here. 2,875 of those students replied to a questionnaire about self-harm. Now, are people more likely to reply to the questionnaire if they behave, you know, behave in this way, or less likely? We don't know. We don't know. Uh, I think it, it's reasonable to presume they might be more likely. But on the other hand, you might also say this is not the sort of thing that people want to answer questionnaires about on the internet. So who knows? So we've got, a, we've got a highly selective sample. We have no idea if it's representative. Okay, so nearly 3,000 students responded. Of the nearly 3,000, uh, 490 had self-harmed. Right? So that's where one in five comes from. It's, it's not quite right, but it's close enough. It's been round, I think it's something like 17%. It's been rounded up. Um, what is the definition of self-harm? Definition of self-harm is scratching or pinching uh, this is the minimal definition, such that marks are left on the skin that last. So you imagine somebody with a letter opener just scratching, somebody pulling their hair. Um, so there's a definition involved. It's not the same as trying to kill yourself. Okay? Um, 49, so that's one-tenth of the 490 who self-harmed, 49 said, this is all self-reported, said that they had inflicted harm on themselves that was serious, serious enough that a doctor or a medical professional should have taken a look at it. Now, we don't know what that means, but you know, one can imagine. So actually, it uh, would have been quite reasonable to report that uh, almost 2% of Ivy League students report serious self-harming behavior where a medical professional should have been involved. It's just a lot less exciting than, than one in five. Okay? We really need to look for the, the definition. And the, the truth is, I mean, I know there are all these statements about uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. The truth is, the job of a statistician is to count things, and one of the things that the statistician has to do while counting things is to figure out what fits into what category. You know? What counts as self-harm? What counts as child abuse? We had a huge um, uh, fuss about three years ago in the UK about knife crime and knife crime was on the rise. There is no uh, accepted definition of knife crime. Official statistics on knife crime are not collected. Um, you know, you, when you go, when you're uh, up in court, and you're being prosecuted for something, you're not prosecuted for knife crime. You're prosecuted for possession of a weapon. You're prosecuted for assault. You're prosecuted for attempted murder. You're not prosecuted for knife crime. Not a very comfortable <coughs> definition. 
Um, but nevertheless, it gets banded around and statistics get used. Um, one of the things that I see a lot is the zombie statistic. You shoot it, and you shoot it, and you shoot it, and it just keeps popping up. Um, and this is often true for uh, research, I think paradoxically, it's often true for research which is extremely dodgy. And I think the reason it's true for research which is extremely dodgy is because you've not constantly got the International Monetary Fund or um, the, uh, the World Trade Organization or the Treasury or the Home Office or what, you've, you've not got some official institution coming out and the, the World Health Organization saying, right, here are the latest numbers on this. When you have an official body publishing the latest numbers, it doesn't mean they're guaranteed to be accurate. But at least you've sort of got these regular up-to-date statistics. On the other hand, when someone just does an ad hoc piece of research and just pops it out there, um, that's often the only piece of research that's ever been done, may not have been done very well, and it will just get repeated and repeated and repeated. Because when people Google and try and find out some, some numbers, because they have to have numbers, because if they don't have numbers, they don't have a story, they'll find this crappy research. So just I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is the number of um, uh, closed-circuit television cameras in the UK. UK is often reported as being the country in the world that has the highest prevalence of CCTV cameras. We don't know how many CCTV cameras there are in the UK. Uh, uh, think for a moment. What is it, well, first of all, what's the definition of a CCTV camera? Um, first, it seems really obvious. And you think, well, if I, uh, if I set up a little webcam, uh, just outside my house, connect to my computer to watch for burglars. Is that a CCTV camera? Argu arguably yes, arguably no. Who's counting? Who decides? Who's the person who comes along and says, there's a CCTV camera outside Tim Harford's house? Better, better write that one down. No one's gathering these numbers. Um, and it, I mean, there are some official statistics, well, not official, but vaguely official statistics on CCTV cameras that are gathered by, so some local councils keep track of how many CCTV cameras they have installed. That's not the same thing. Um, so this particular study was done um, in London. Two academics walked down two streets in Barnes in southwest London. They counted all the CCTV cameras. So they really did say, oh, Tim Harford's got a, you've got a webcam outside his house. They counted them all. And then they, uh, they said, right, well, that's our sample, and we're going to extrapolate to the whole of the country. Oh, and they did it in 2001. <laughs> so this number is now 11 years out of date. And it's still a number I see used again and again. Now, I'm not saying those academics did a bad job. I mean, clearly, it wasn't the world's greatest piece of research. But if you read the research, they're like, this is what we did, and this is what we found. More research is needed. <laughs> Except, of course, to, to the world's CCTV cameras, and journalists are often unwitting um, conspirators in the campaign for or against CCTV cameras. You know, we don't, no, no further research is not needed. We don't need any further research. We've got the number. Let's run with it. Um, Another example um, that my uh, uh, sort of a guy admire very much, Ben Goldacre at The Guardian uh, wrote about, and he came on more or less to talk about. And the reason he came on more or less is because he comprehensively shredded it the previous year, and it was being used in Parliament by a government minister a year after he utterly discredited it. And it was about how much money the British government could save by using smart procurement. Um, what was this based on? This was based on um, a press release done, uh, produced by a procurement firm. And they looked at a couple of items of expenditure that said, oh, if, uh, if we could sort of procure, oh, I think it was heating services, we could save you um, 8%. If we could procure this and blah, blah, blah. Uh, oh, and by the way, we could save 20% on your mobile phone tariffs if you, if you let us buy that for you. So mobile phones, obviously, 
famously the most confusingly priced objects in existence. Um, but the actual numbers put on this, it turns out that actually governments don't, it was local governments, don't spend a lot of money on mobile phones. So the actual total saving was tiny. But the press release then said, well, if we could save 20% on everything, which we've actually, through the use of two further examples, we've demonstrated we can't. But if we could, and there's no reason to believe we can, but if we could, then we would save, I think it was 40 billion pounds. Uh, and away we go, and the government, the government minister is using it. And Ben shot it down, and the government minister kept using it. We got him on, he shot it down again. You know, and there's, there's really no fighting them. You just have to, like real zombies, you have to, you have to just keep bashing them down. Um, I think the, this almost feels beneath us to discuss here because we're serious people and we care about the future of journalism. But I have to devote attention, a little bit of attention, to the pure nonsense statistics, the pure junk statistics. So um, the, uh, you see them in advertising campaigns. So um, a Revlon lipstick will make your lips 25% or look, you make your lips look 25% fuller and glossier. What? What, who, what is the measure of full glossiness? I mean, that's just, but apparently you could put that in an advert. It reminds me of the Onion article. There was an Onion article. God released a press release uh, announcing that he, he was going to make berries 20% more berrylicious. Uh, and the reason it was funny is because it just sounded, yeah, actually, that's exactly the kind of product release you get every day. It gets reported. It certainly gets lots of advertising space. Um, what is the measure of berryliciousness? Um, I'd like to think that this kind of thing never actually has a place in proper journalism. That real journalists don't have anything to do with that kind of nonsense. That's just advertising. Sadly, it's not true. The classic example um, uh, is Blue Monday. So Blue Monday, I, I, and if it's infected uh, the rest of the world outside the UK, I apologise. Uh, but I believe it started here. So Blue Monday, a few years ago, a uh, public relations company were hired um, by, I think it was a travel company, to get some coverage for um, advertising holidays in the winter. I'm sure you've noticed it can get cold and dark here, right? <laughs> so um, the PR company then hired somebody who had taught some tutorials at Cardiff University who was then promoted to a lecturer in psychology at Cardiff University. And this lecturer in psychology at Cardiff University was paid a couple hundred quid and produced an equation for the most depressing day of the year. <laughs> and if you, if you care at all about the integrity of journalism and about the purity of numbers, it really is now the most depressing day of the year. Because every single year, the press will report on it as if it's true as if it's actually true, some, like an, an actual scientist did some actual science and discovered that Bloom, this Monday, oh, it's, I think it's the 20th of January or something. Um, you can see the formula, it's pure nonsense, it makes absolutely no sense, he just made up some, he just made up some nonsense. He didn't even, didn't even pretend. And he said, well, I've got my 300 quid. There you go, there's your number. Uh, it's not his fault, it's our fault. You know, we keep reporting and reporting and reporting. And when we do that, there are a couple of effects. The one is we're demonstrating we just don't care about how science is done, about what numbers mean. We don't care. We just stick it in the papers. We do not care. Um, also, it means that when, when a proper scientist actually does release some results, 
Nobody takes it very seriously. Like, well, you know, scientists telling us that eggs are bad for us again. They told us eggs were good for us last week, you know, and eggs were bad for us the week before, and those scientists. So it, I, it really debases uh, the fact that numbers can be used very, very powerfully, very, very usefully to, to illuminate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and have a discussion in a few minutes, but a couple more thoughts, a couple more thoughts. There are cases where you can't do this yourself, and you should be getting some expert help. And there usually are experts, preferably not fake psychologists from the University of Cardiff, but real academics uh, who are happy to talk you through. Uh, if it's a press release from an official government agency, there should be somebody in the statistics department who can tell you what the statistics really mean. Uh, usually, tremendous clarity, and you really sort of get some context. Um, there will be an academic who can read that uh, health finding for you and say, mm, yeah, a bit dodgy or interesting, but it doesn't really say what you think it says. Um, uh, an example um, of the, the kind of time where there are traps for the unwary is regression to the mean. But what regression to the mean uh, means is if you take any, any event that is extreme, for instance, an accident black spot. So you say you area on the, on the road, uh, you've lots and lots of accidents. You, if you then just keep watching that area, you will see an improvement, almost certainly. And the reason is, well, it may be a dangerous point on the road, or it may have just been bad luck. Quite likely a bit of both. And you will tend, and similarly, if you look at situations where, the, you look at a place where the situation is very, very good, you should expect the situation to deteriorate, a particularly safe place, a particularly good school. Because some of it will be because it really is a good school, some of it will be through random chance. This matters because if you, say, um, put speed cameras on all the accident black spots, and you then see how many accidents happen after the speed cameras were installed, it's very easy to tell yourself that the speed cameras had a fantastic effect on reducing accidents, whereas in fact, the accidents were going to fall simply because we're not, we're not sort of saying, well, let's just put some speed cameras randomly and see what happens. We're saying, let's put speed cameras at the, the worst places. The worst places are the worst places partly because of bad luck, and bad luck doesn't last. So that's the kind of example where it's hard to spot this by yourself, and even if you can spot it by yourself, it's certainly hard to interpret it. But you can get advice. You can get advice. Um, when we're expressing risk, this is a, a sin committed in medical science journalism all the time. So uh, we discovered last year that eating a bacon sandwich a day increases your risk of cancer by 20%. Okay. So what's, what's wrong with this statement? Who eats a bacon sandwich every day? Well, I wish I could. Uh, I mean, that's one thing, yeah? Who eats a bacon sandwich every day? Second? What type of cancer? What type of cancer? Good question. Bowel cancer? i.e. Not, not breast cancer, not, not brain cancer, you know, not liver cancer, bowel cancer, particular kind of cancer. What else is wrong with the statement? Over what period of time? Uh, yes. Uh, and also... Among whom? So, indeed, and I think the answer is anybody who eats bacon sandwiches. <laughs> but I, but I'm not, I, think it's a, I think it's the total background. There's another problem, which is not specifically an error, it's just a missing piece of information that would be really handy. Well, if, if you eat bacon sand sandwiches, you're probably like greasy food anyway, so it's, it's not, the, not the bacon that does it, but it's the, it's the overall diet. So there, there's another question with all of these things, which is, when you see these numbers, did they 
did they control for the fact that people who eat bacon sandwiches also drink beer and smoke, for instance? Um, not, not clear, not clear. Um, I mean, we, we know very well that there are religious reasons why some people don't eat bacon, and there are also people who are quite likely not to drink. So maybe we're just picking up people abstaining from alcohol. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. Um, but there's another thing. Even if, we, even if everything about that statement is true and is absolute cast iron, Genetic disposition, right? Just a really simple statistical... 20% increase over what? Exactly. 20% of what? What is your chance of getting bowel cancer? It could be tiny. It could be tiny. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that small. But until you tell me that, you've really told me... You've, basically, you've said that uh, uh, if you eat bacon sandwiches, your risk of an unknown condition, because we haven't specified it, will increase from an unknown amount to another unknown amount. <laughs> this is not helpful. It's absolutely ubiquitous. So the actual fact, so it's a four in a hundred. So if you imagine a hundred people who abstain from bacon sandwiches, four of them will get bowel cancer eventually. I think it's, I think it's lifetime risk, in answer to the question I got here. Four of them will get uh, bowel cancer. <coughs> Feed them all bacon sandwiches every day. One extra person will get bowel cancer. Now, you as a consumer of that information, have something you can actually use to make a decision. And this is called reporting absolute risks rather than reporting relative risks. And it's very, very important because particularly, bowel cancer is fairly common. Some cancers are incredibly rare. And you will very often get some medical report saying that, well, I think throat cancer is one. Alcohol increases your risk of throat cancer. Throat cancer is rare. So it, you know, basically, it, it increases your risk of a rare event. Sometimes the risk can be astonishing. So in the case of cot death, it turns out that having babies sleep on the front rather than on the back uh, triples the risk of cot death. However, the risk of cot death is very small, thankfully. And so Dr. Benjamin Spock and all the other pediatricians could, for 30 years, advise their parents wrongly, because we didn't have the evidence. And then when we did have the evidence, we didn't gather it together advise their parents to put their children to sleep on their front. I was put to sleep on my front. And because the risk is actually very low, um, it takes a long, long time to realize that's bad advice. I mean, it did kill tens of thousands of children, but the risk was very low. And you turn the child right way up. You've, you've reduced by two thirds a small risk to a tiny one. This is, this is useful information. I've heard that the 10,000 really shocked Yeah, I think it may be more than 10,000. I mean, it's, we're talking. You know, let's unpack that. Over what period? Yes, okay. uh, so, 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 so it's only 40 years, and it's, I think it includes the US. Um, I think it's mostly English-speaking countries. It includes Australia, includes the UK. But, and you know, there, there are, in these countries, when you do the maths, there will be uh, probably 5 million babies born every year. So over 10 years, 50 million. Over 40 years, 200 million. So if you say 50,000 children were killed out of 200 million, you would think it's still quite a small risk. Um, but yeah, you want to report the absolute risks as well as the relative. Relative risks are fine if you want, but the absolute risks, I think, are what people really understand. And it's very interesting that we journalists often choose not to report what people really understand. <coughs> choose to report what seems more striking. Yes, sir. Whilst you're still on your feet, could you just briefly explain invariance? Because I've never understood it. Invariance? Invariance, what is that? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, 
it has something to do with statistical means yeah. and the way in which they're interpreted. And I keep on reading this expression in variance. So are you thinking of variance? Okay. Probably. So, I mean, I'm not a statistician. No, I'm not, thank you. I'm not, a, I'm, not a, I'm not a professional statistician. So, um, so variance and standard deviation are two different but related measures of the spread of risk. Right. Uh, so calculated in a technical way. Um, a, uh, as, a, as a rough rule of thumb, um, so the, if you take the variance and you take the square root of it, you get the standard deviation. That's not a rough rule of thumb, that's the definition. That's right, okay. um, if, you, um, if something is two standard deviations away from the mean, it's unusual. How unusual? You'd expect to see it about 5% of the time. It's not incredibly unusual, but it's unusual. That, there are other assumptions behind what I just said, but that's a rough thing. So if something's one standard deviation away from the mean, you know, you, you could see it a you know, third of the time. If something's two standard deviations away from the mean, you'll see it about 5% of the time. When David Vineyard, the chief financial officer of Goldman Sachs, said the reason we lost a ton of money in these hedge funds we were running is because we, we were seeing these 25 standard deviation events several days in a, in a, in a row. So 25. 25 standard deviation events. Now, somebody in the, in the FT, to our shame, John, somebody in the FT said a 25 standard deviation event is a 1 in 100,000 year event. Um, everybody else in the FT knew better. Um, it turns out that um, the chance of seeing a one in a 25 standard deviation event, if you look every day, you would expect to see one of these every X years, where X is a number of years with 68 zeros. Okay. And that's just one 25 standard deviation event. You know, he said he saw several. So um, you need to. You need to uh, you, you need a, you need a find out that it was me. Uh, I can confirm it was not John. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that sort of gets technical. But basically, both variance and standard deviation are a measure of how unusual an event is statistically. There are then more technical definitions uh, about uh, whether a whether a, um, a distribution is skewed. So you could have a situation where. Um, Lots and lots of people have slightly below the average income, and a few people have massively more than the average income. So the income distribution is skewed, and there's a technical measure of that. And if you want to get really technical, there's a further measure of the fatness of the tails, which basically says, um, okay, we've got a measure of spread of a distribution. Um, how are very, very, un very, very uh, distant <laughs> things from the center of the distribution? These very extreme events are they just impossibly unlikely, or are they are they still conceivable? And part of the black swan, Nassim Taleb's black swan idea, was about these the fatness of these tails. That's probably getting more technical than we need to. But the standard deviation and the variance are measures of the spread around a central distribution. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, I was going to say I, I, I was going to I was going to wrap up actually and. With, a, with an example, and forgive me, I realise it's partly because I haven't been feeling well this morning. I, I realise I have fallen back on British examples and American examples a lot, um, so sorry about that. But to take the British deficit, government deficit, uh, at the height of the crisis, 2008, 2009, at least we hope it was the height of the crisis, it was about £150 billion. Okay? That true fact, £150 billion, not very helpful. It doesn't tell us really what we need to know. And what I've been trying to drive at is a lot of what we're trying to do when we're reporting numbers is not to do very technical work, although that has its place. We're not necessarily doing statistical, uh, you know, data-driven uh, you know, journalism. 
um, we're often just trying to do good journalism, explain what is happening to our readers, tell them what the world is like, and that means giving context. So for that 150 billion pound figure, item number one, I'd like to say, well, okay, first, what's the definition of the deficit? So that's how much the government, how much extra the government is borrowing every year. Seems a really simple thing, but constantly in the British uh, blogosphere and sometimes in the British press, the debt has been confused with the deficit. The debt is how much have you borrowed in total. The deficit is the new borrowing. If you get those two confused, you can get into an awful mess. Second, I'd like to say, okay, is 150 billion pounds a big number? Um, so we could look at that in two ways. We could say, well, how much is it per person? That's the maths are really easy. It's 2,500 pounds per person. It's 10,000 pounds for a family of four of new borrowing. So the government is borrowing on behalf of the typical British citizen, who may be a pensioner, maybe two years old, 2,500 pounds a year. That gives you a sense of the size of the deficit. You would also say, how does it compare to deficits in other countries? Turns out it was one of the highest um, in the OECD. But you'd also, uh, finally, if you're really going to get the context, you'd say, what's this doing to the cost of British borrowing? Are people still willing to lend us money? Because people seem very unwilling to lend a bunch of people money. And it turns out the cost of borrowing is still very low. For whatever reason, and we could go into the reasons, people are still willing to lend the British government money. <coughs> it doesn't take a tremendous amount of work to provide that context. It's often some very simple maths, or just looking up a few things on standard tables, and you provided readers with a context for that 150 billion that they wouldn't normally have. So I, to sum up, I would say the principles of good reporting of numbers and statistics are really the same as the principles of good journalism. Um, first, you've got to ask yourself, is this true? Is it actually true, or is it just spin from somebody, just something that somebody made up and are trying to sell? Okay, That's fundamental. Then the second question is, um, what does it really say? What is the definition? Okay? You've got a definition of a particular category of crime, or a particular social problem, or a particular economic <coughs> event. What, what is the definition? What is actually formally meant by that? Because it is very often <coughs> deceptive. It often doesn't accord with, what you, with common sense. For very good statistical reasons, often. You, you really want to understand what's happening there. And the third thing is, what's the bigger story? What's the context? What's the history? How big is this number? Is it going up? Is it going down? What does this number look like in other countries? Um, can I find useful comparisons? Do I know anything about the distribution? The same principles of, of good journalism apply to good uh, reporting of numbers and statistics. Is it true? What does it really mean? And what's the broader story? Um, I've probably talked for long enough. Let's have a chat. Thank you.